the Boston Book Festival celebrates the power of words to stimulate, agitate, unite, delight, and inspire. Here, Prince Award winner Libba Braid discusses her remarkably inventive young adult fiction with Robert Bredder, teen librarian at the Brookline Public Library. Good morning. My name is Nora Peel, and I'm the deputy director of the Boston Book Festival. I'm thrilled to welcome you all to our first ever young adult keynote. <laughs> I'd especially like to thank our sponsor for this session, Simmons College. In a moment, I'll let Kathy tell you why Simmons supports the BBF, but for now, I'd like to encourage all of you to join Simmons in becoming supporters of the Boston Book Festival. And now I'm pleased to introduce Catherine Mercier from Simmons, who will say a few words. Thank you very much. This is really intimidating. Thank you, Nora. Um, I'm Kathy Mercier. I direct the graduate degree programs and in children's literature and the Center for the Study of Children's Literature at Simmons College. I'm particularly honored to introduce this morning's young adult keynote conversation. I feel as though I've waited too long to be able to introduce Libba Bray. She's unlikely to remember our first meeting, though I reminded her last night, but I doubt I will ever forget. We were meeting at the American Library Association, and Libba was already a celebrated author there. I was a lowly faculty member. It was morning, and I decided to go to the gym, so I grabbed the advanced reading copy of a first novel by one of our graduates, Joe Knowles. I went and sat on the recumbent bicycle, because that's like how much I like to exercise. I sat on the recumbent bicycle, I pulled out um, lessons from a dead girl, and I heard someone across the room say, how are you liking that book? I confess that I was loving that book. I was on page three, and I was thrilled, thrilled that it was finally published because I had read it in manuscript form, in a number of manuscript forms. It was a terrific piece by someone destined to become an important young adult author. The woman said, oh, so you know a lot about young adult literature. Have you ever heard of Libba Bray? Um, yeah. The woman said, well, in case you've never met her, she's right over there. And I looked over, and there was Libba Bray in sweats and t-shirt, just like me. Holy bovine, I thought, a real human being behind all of this work. But meeting someone when you're sweating and in your gym clothes is not always the way you want to be known in their minds forever and ever. So this is a much more professional setting in which to introduce Libra Bray, a daring author of books such as Going Bovine, Beauty Queens, The Gemma Doyle Trilogy, The Diviners, and Lair of Dreams. We hope she continues to push the boundaries of genre, to explore the inexplicable and the nearly unimaginable, and to always, always win over readers with the sheer inventiveness of her created worlds and lyricism of language. Interviewing Libba Bray will be the flamboyant, spirited, and inimitable Robin Brenner, one of our local um, teen librarians at the Brookline Public Library and founder of No Flying, No Tights. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I just... You can hear me, yay, all right. Yeah. Excellent. I feel like I'm in a movie, in fact. <laughs> I, a I, all I can think about is Prince, dearly beloved, <laughs> gathered here today. There you go. This thing called life. <laughs> Sorry. So thank you everyone for coming. Um, we are very excited. I'm very excited to be here with Libba. Um, to be here with Robin. Who, yeah. Can we just talk about how fabulous Robin looks? <laughs> yeah. Thank you for the excuse. <laughs> so, um, those of you who may know me know I take any excuse to dress up. So, <laughs> excellent. Um, so, uh, for this morning, I think we can talk about a lot of different things. As we discussed last night, if we get distracted, we can talk about Blade Runner. Um, so, just so you know, if, if we end up in that conversation, you'll know what's happened. Um, but for this morning, I think one of the things I wanted to know is, is uh, you came for the Diviners, actually, at the, at the Brookline Library, which was extraordinary fun. Um, it was extraordinary fun. <laughs> was... I've needed three years just to recover. Exactly. Um, so I wondered about, um, in the process of writing a longer series like that, especially a historical series, um, what your research process has been like as you've gone through and started at the beginning, of course, because um, you've written two historical series. 
and just <laughs> how that works. It's because I was not loved enough as a child. And, uh, first of all, thank you for being here. Um, I, I hope everybody is sufficiently caffeinated, and if not, just take a snooze. It's fine. Um, but thank you for being here, and thank you to Simmons College, and thank you to the Boston Book Festival, and thank you to all the volunteers who are working really, really hard. You know, if you see a volunteer today, just, you know, give them a thumbs up, because they're, they're working really hard. And also, I'm thrilled to be here with Robin, who is an amazing librarian. Um, and if you need to talk graphic novels, she is your lady. She will, she will hook you up. So, um, Anyway, I'm thrilled to be here, and thank you. And now I'm like, oh, wait, what was the question? Oh, right, <laughs> research. Mm -hmm. So um, research, I, I, I always feel like there are people who are extremely organized, um, and I am, I am not one of those people. It will become painfully obvious if I, as I try to speak in a linear fashion today. You'll be like, what? It, <laughs> what's going on? What's going on? Um, so, and for me, the research is also kind of crazy like that. But one thing I like to do is sort of get, you know, I might have like vague inklings of like, ah, I kind of like to know about, you know, I'd like to know about, um, you know, numbers running or something like that. And, and so I will read, I will read kind of far and wide and, and, um, and go down all these different rabbit holes. And I, you know, and when I was starting the Diviners, I also read books from the period because I think it's great to read fiction from the period. And then I start getting into it's almost like you know when you go on iTunes and there's basic cuts and then there's next cuts and then there's deep cuts. It's I kind of feel like that's the way it is with the research. Um, so you know, I'll do sort of a broad overview of things, and then I'll be like, oh well, that is this is very interesting that they believed in radium cures. <laughs> like, oh, here you go, Timmy. Here's some here's some irradiated water. Mmm, you got that glow of health forever. Um, you know, and those are the kinds of things that I'll I'll look into. Um, but then you know, it involves obviously going to libraries and using um, for for layer of dreams. Um, I went to the Museum of Chinese in America and did research there. Uh, just, and I always say that no librarians were harmed in the process of making this book, but I, but I owe plenty of them drinks. Um, so, so yeah, and, and it's always surprising, like, the, the things that crop up that you, you just never, that you can never plan for, and that's just the serendipity of it. And so I think that's part of both research and writing, is I remain very, very open, because I never know what's going to come up that is going to be like, that is the golden ticket. Mm -hmm. Well, I know I had that experience with this book in particular with um, Beach's pneumatic train, because I, yes. I just love pneumatic tubes or something I think we should all bring back, but um, <laughs> just because I've, who doesn't want to send a message in a little tube? Um, but I think, you know, I knew that existed and I knew the, the kind of messaging system existed in some of the buildings and still does, but I had no idea there had been this kind of one street length subway. Um, and I loved that that was a part, so immediately, of course, I was reading and then had to go look it all up and research it because that's what librarians do. Um, but it was it was great to have that as a seed. So I wondered kind of with those little details, how you choose which ones, because there must, I mean, history is full of things. So how do you decide <laughs> which thing to pull out as like the linchpin? That, I, I love that you're like, how do you, how do you decide? Sort of like, <laughs> or you just go, hmm, that's cool. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I'll have some cake and see what happens. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Well, first of all, I have to admit, does anyone know about Beach's Pneumatic? <laughs> well, how fortunate for you that I have done research on it. Uh, um, so Beach's Pneumatic, first of all, the first time I ever heard about Beach's Pneumatic was Ghostbusters. Ah, yes, okay. Such lofty beginnings. <laughs> if only I could have worked in a Stay Puff Marshmallow Man. But a, but a flapper Stay Puff Marshmallow yes, Man. That would you have been know, fantastic. Like that. <laughs> That's book three. There you go. So, um, but Beach's pneumatic was the basically the prototype for the for the subway, and it was built by this man Alfred Beach, uh, who really wanted to build a subway system in New York. But you know, New York politics was, with Tammany Hall it was so corrupt that um, nobody was nobody was going to invest in that, and so he built the subway kind of in secret. Uh, downtown on, um, it was it was Broadway between Warren and Murray Street. I, I have the world's worst sense of direction. Um, and so sometimes, even though I have researched something many, many times, and even though I live in New York City and walk those streets, I'll be like, wait, where was it? <laughs> um, 
Actually, famous sidebar. This, this is my first nonlinear. Yay, Yay. ding. There should, be like a, there should be a drinking game. Like, <laughs> you will all be drunk within the first five minutes. So, and, unless you're underage, and then that's bad. Um, but, but you adults, whoo. So, so first sidebar is that um, I've already lost the train of thought. My God, it's happening already. Uh, so train. just train. It was um, another sidebar. Oh, direction. Yes, copy okay. edits. <laughs> Naturally, pumpkins. Okay. So in the first book, in Diviners, mm-hmm. I, I said something about they walked. Um, they walked east on the Bowery, and my copy editor said, "Libba." The Bowery runs north-south. So I had done all of this research about all kinds of arcane things, but I got the direction of the Bowery wrong, and I used to live off the Bowery. (laughs) This is like, you know, it's a miracle I made it here today. Um, but yes, so Beach's Pneumatic was this sort of prototype, and it, and it ran, there was a giant, a giant fan, I feel like, um, you know, llamas with hats, the giant <laughs> fan, thank you, three people who got that, um, and so it would move the train back and forth, and it was in existence for about three years, and then there was a, a, a recession, and then it was closed down, it was a shooting gallery, and, and eventually it was, it was you know, kind of, it was, it was paved over when they, when they did City Hall. But I found it so fascinating that they were basically scooping out earth and trying to do this in secret. And people would be like, what is that rumbling? Why are they, you know, these big piles of dirt sitting out there? <laughs> and, uh, and to me, that was just, that was just fascinating that this could be done in the heart of the city, in the bustle of the city. Um, and so I just, I just loved the idea of this mm-hmm. sort of, this bit of, of history in New York becoming a sort of ghostly, uh, terrible, terrible place. That's basically <laughs> what I do. I take all of the happy things and I say, how can I ruin children's lives forever? <laughs> Sleep with one eye open, <laughs> like I do. I had that thought also about the, um, with the, with the train and with the kind of the sense that you know the city that you're writing about. And um, with the Gemma Doyle trilogy, that was a different city. So it's a different sort of research track, I would think. I learned from that, Robin. Did you? Ah. <laughs> so Set it in your backyard. <laughs> All right. Good idea. Um, so does it... I was curious if there are things that it's just easier because you know the city now, um, so you can sit there and go, oh, okay, I know, well, maybe not directions, but, <laughs> but I remember that building or I've seen that facade or whatever. Um, but then I also wondered about whether it was harder because you want to put things in that you know that are just part of your daily routine or part of the things you know about the city. Um, so in terms of editing it down to what makes sense. That's a, that's a really interesting question. I, and I was thinking about this this week because I'm researching book three. Spoilers. Spoilers, sweetie. <laughs> um, and part of it takes place on Ward's and Randall's Islands, which is where the old asylums used to be. Uh, and so it was, I, I, this historian took me for in a golf cart. Drove me there. I was holding on for dear life, you know, and, uh, and we're driving around and we're going under the Hell's Gate Bridge, which is, is just the best name ever. I'm obsessed with this bridge. Um, and as we were driving around and now, you know, and there were a million kids out playing soccer because the Parks and Rec Department had come out and, and kind of refurbished it. And, and so there, there's basically there's practically no vestiges of what the city was or, and what it was in the, you know, 100 years ago. And so that, of course, is what happens for the novelist is you have to imagine it. And it is sort of weird when it's a city that you live in and that you think that you know so well and you think, wow, but once upon a time, um, even though there are buildings that have been there for forever, uh, you know, now it's, you know, now it's a shoe store. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, I mean, even today when I was coming, I mean, you must experience this mm-hmm. in, in Boston. I mean, I just, I see the cranes everywhere. Yep. And so it is, it is sort of fascinating. I mean, there's so much in there thematically in Lair of Dreams about that kind of change and about how things just morph and grow. Has, has anyone ever seen the, have you, have you ever seen this movie, mm-hmm. Dark City? Yes. Right? I love that movie. Mm-hmm. And not just because it has Rufus Sewell. <laughs> But I love the idea of the, you know, the city constantly changing overnight. And in a way, in writing this book, that's what I thought about. I thought, you know, it feels like this city that I think I know, mm-hmm. it just, it, it, you know, 
it's not the same city, and yet it's the same city. And it, but I think that what does stay the same are people in many ways. You know, it's, it's, there's certain things, uh, you know, like reading about um, the greengrocers or the fish market, and you're like, well, those things still exist. That's, that's mm-hmm. still how things operate. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of lovely. And that leads me to another question we, I was thinking of is the, the idea of, in writing historical fiction, I think there are a couple of things that have come out in this series that I, I appreciate, certainly as a reader and as a librarian. Um, one is just the diversity of the cast, that you have a wide range of people that represent a lot of different parts of a city. And I think there is that sense that, you know, when history is told, it's told by the dominant narrative, um, and often you lose track of just how diverse any city is during any period of its time. So I really like that this is bringing back that, you know, you get the stereotypical flapper from the 20s, um, you tend to forget the other things that were going on, and uh, both the political movements and, and the kind of unrest, uh, the fact that it was post-World War One. there's just a lot of baggage that people tend to forget, um, but also just all the populations that you've represented. So I wondered how you chose which characters to bring out and kind of how how to kind of represent in that way, because um, you have such a, a great cast, uh, I think. And I, I, since it's a series, I'm glad we have this long to get to know everybody. Um, oh, thank you. You're the person who appreciates that I do. we have this I long. I love, I love having long stories. Um, <laughs> I initially had said, I think this will be six books, and everyone looked at it. was like, you know, it was like, <laughs> like a, a clang went off. <laughs> no, it's not going to be six books. Um, and uh, so it's going to be four books, <coughs> secret book five. And, um, but I, what you were saying about the uh, about history being written by the dominant culture, and that is that is very true. And I, I, there is a line in Diviners where uh, Evie's uncle Will says, "There is no power on earth more. There's there's nothing on earth more powerful than story." And that is true because, uh, which makes me think about, I don't know if anyone has seen the wonderful Hamilton that is on stage right now. Um, and the tagline is, who lives, who dies, who tells your story. So it's who controls the narrative. And that is, you know, that is, I think, very much a part of this series. How is, how is the narrative shaped for us? How is history shaped for us? And what is our responsibility? How are we complicit in that? What is our responsibility um, you know, to learn about how that narrative has been shaped for us and to try to make changes? Um, but in terms of the cast, well, this is the New York I live in. I'm representing the world that I live in. So, of course, there are, you know, a, there's a wide swath of experience. But there are also things that I think are particular to this time period. So, Memphis Campbell, uh, you know, lives in, in Harlem and the Harlem Renaissance. How can you not touch on the Harlem Renaissance, which was an amazing aspect, one of my favorite uh, things to look into and one of my favorite parts of the 1920s. And of course, and then uh, uh, Ling Chan, who is, who is half Irish and uh, half Chinese, her father has, co- has immigrated from China, her mother has immigrated from Ireland. There was a great deal of, of prejudice um, that she's having to navigate. And, and it deals with the Chinese Exclusion Act, which is a particularly nasty piece of American history. And, Yet we don't seem to learn from these things. So obviously there are people, and Mabel, whose parents are union organizers, and in the 20s there was a huge backlash against unions. So a lot of that obviously also helps in shaping uh, things that I want to talk about, but it also absolutely represents um, you know, the world that we live in, and uh, I can't imagine not representing that world that we live in. That, uh, the other thing I was wondering about is, is also in terms of genre, mm-hmm. because you've written kind of a wide swath of genres, certainly. But Ooh, have I? You have. <laughs> At least I think so. Um, but it's also that sense of, you know, as, as you've kind of said, you wanted to look into history, you wanted to discuss post-9-11 America and do a kind of interesting arrangement of things, and then the 20s kind of became a way to talk about that. But then, of course, you add monsters, because why not? Because, of course. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I know there's also, you know, a contingent, shall I say, of readers who would dismiss that and say, well, if you add fantasy or horror or whatever, that makes it somehow not as serious or not as... Um, I don't know, not as um, able to explore those same issues, which I, you know, I've always been on the other side of that argument. But I was curious about how 
how you feel about genre, whether you think it's useful in terms of marking a book as a genre, um, either when you're writing it or when you're um, kind of talking to people about it, um, and if you have any sense of why you gravitate to the genres that you do. Um, that's a great question. As are, all your questions are great, Robin. You should be a librarian or something, because I think you're doing... By the way, I also just have to point out, this is not vodka. This It does, yeah. I have that This thought. is water uh, shaped in a vodka-style bottle, yes. and it's also named Fred. Yes. And I just, I think we should name all our food, because like, what are you having, Bob? <laughs> Eating Bob. Um, that, I just, that could be disturbing. <laughs> Fred, but you know, we are in a church. This is transubstantiation time. So. Uh, I'm just, I'm waiting to go up in a puff of smoke. I just think it's funny that they put me on hallowed ground, you know, like, no, that one, put her in the church, which brings us back to genre and horror. And I, I, I love, I, I'm a genre reader. I mean, I, and, and I also grew up le- reading, um, you know, literature as well. And, but you know, I um, I was such a horror fan growing up, and I, I was an anxious child. You're like, really? I'm shocked. <laughs> I, was, I was sort of cheerfully anxious, like, mm-hmm. I know we're all going to die, probably horribly. <laughs> <laughs> this water's named Fred. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I, I think that there is something about horror that really soothes anxious children because you have, you can fight evil. I mean, it, it's, like, mm-hmm. it's like all of that... All of that unconscious stuff is made manifest into, you know, a vampire or a werewolf or something like that. And, and you know, I always identified with the werewolf, but that, those are my issues. Um, <laughs> and I, th- I think that, of course, I mean, I just absolutely love horror. And I think the thing about horror is that it is always rooted in big emotional stakes. I mean, real horror is about... It's sorrow, it's loss, it's grief, it's our fear of death. It is about, you know, I always say the monsters that we create in, um, you know, werewolves, vampires, etc., are nothing compared to the actual monsters, uh, you know, among us humans. And, and that is, and so it's a wonderful, wonderful is a weird it's a wonderful, it's a wonderland of, of exploring human misery. Um, that's a theme park that's just waiting to be made. Like, oh, what did you get? Oh, I got the Cinnabon that had been dropped in the dirt. I paid ten ninety five for it. And also they're out of milk. It's all curdled. Um, <laughs> no, it's good to know, it's good to, for me to have a, you know, a, a plan after I finish writing. Um, misery land. But it's obviously a great way as metaphor to explore those things that humans do that are monstrous. And um, I, I have never, you know, like, it's really funny to me when somebody will say, well, you know, but that's that genre, it's not literature. And I'll say, really? How do you feel about Bram Stoker's Dracula? Well, that's in the canon. Yeah. Okay. Um, but, you know, in terms of, like, how people, uh, how people read, I always say, you know, that's, that's the reader's experience. I would never intrude on that. And if somebody came up to me and said, you know, I loved your book, The Diviners, and, you know, I loved that it's really all about the invention of the bikini, I would say, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, because if that's what, you know, if, if, if that's what you got out of it, then that's what you got out of it. I, I feel like however anybody wants to read it, they can read it. But I do think that it's interesting that people are dismissive of genre um, when I think that some glorious writing happens in genre, and there's there's... The fantastical kind of opens us up in a way in, in which I, I think that, I mean, for me at least, I find that it, it opens me up. It's a way in. And I think for a lot of teen readers, from what I hear, it's often a way in because it's like, you know, yeah. It's, I mean, and also for me, like, I love genres. So, you know, it's like X-Men, yes, give it to me. Watchmen, give it to me, um, you know. I, I, I like my stuff served up with a, a generous dose of, you know, swashbuckling and, and excitement. Mm-hmm. Um, that leads me to the question I had that was more fun. 
if you had your choice, is, are there things that you would like to bring back from the 20s, either food and or drinks that you kind of ran across and mm. were like, ooh, I would like to try that, or um, um, fashion? <laughs> definitely not irradiated water. Definitely not, <laughs> not radium cures, not the eugenics movement. Uh, um, but, you know, I mean, and, and, and of course, so many of the things that we're talking about in the 20s have, yes. are unfortunately <laughs> happening now. <coughs> Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> Uh, so wh what would I bring back? I mean, the fashion is pretty amazing. It is pretty fun. The fashion <laughs> is amazing. And also, um, gosh, what would I bring back? I mean, I think it would have been amazing to, I mean, obviously it exists now, but to have been there when jazz was really taking off and when radio was really taking off, mm -hmm. I mean, just the idea of how exciting and new that was, mm -hmm. um, I, I think, uh, I think that would have been, uh, you know, like, but that, that would have been particular to the time, like to right. have been there witnessing the birth of all that. But I, I think the fashion, the fashion is pretty incredible. Yeah. I mean, look at you. Yeah. Well, you're amazing. <laughs> it's, it's comfortable too, compared to other time periods. Right, except for the binding of the chest. Except the bindings, yeah. Like that, that is unfortunate. That's yes. what, no matter what era you're in, you can always count on trying to keep women down. <laughs> so good to know there's a constant. Yeah. Have you? I, I did want to ask if you've ever gone underground in your research. Oh. If you got to go into any of the subway tunnels or any of the? Because I know there's a hidden station. Is there one that you can go to on the train and then turn That's around? That's the city and come hall back? station. Yes. yes. And uh, um, and I did, by the way, go to the uh, MTA archives and you know obviously the museum and and mm -hmm. I I sat on an actual 1920s subway car. Um, so here's the thing you need to know about me: writing is my only extreme sport. Uh. <laughs> And, you know, and that definitely I'm holding the ripcord and looking down going, ah, oh, it's a good day to die. Put the bullet <laughs> in my molars, y'all. You know, I've got eight main characters. <laughs> I don't even know how to make a grocery list. I can't even talk in a linear fashion. But uh, everything else I'm like, oh, no, that seems like death. <laughs> oh, I might get dirty. Yes. <laughs> Wait, there are rats? Hmm, you go ahead. <laughs> it's like Wild Kingdom. I'll watch from the safety of the plane while Steve <laughs> rustles the wild anaconda. Um, so I met with this man named Steve Duncan, who is an actual urban explorer. And I had found him online. I contacted him. We had dinner. He looks and sounds like Owen Wilson. I am not kidding. <laughs> And so we're sitting there, and he's tearing into his pasta. And, I, and so I said, well, now, Steve, if I wanted to go down into the tunnels, I mean, you could take me on a tour, right? And he's like, tour? Mm, not legally. Um, and I said, okay. He said, oh, yeah, you could totally get arrested. And I thought, well, that might be kind of interesting. You know? like, like, hey, y'all, I got arrested for this book, so come on. <laughs> Show the love. And then I said, I was like, I was like, okay, but you know, like, not, I'm not going to get killed or anything. And he was like, oh yeah, you could totally get killed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then I was less interested. Yeah, I, and I so, um, so I just picked his brain mercilessly and I was like, okay, well, show me the videos, what happens. And he told me all these stories and, and you know, he was down there with an experienced urban explorer one time. She got clipped by a, a, a train. She was okay. Wow. But, you know, he's like, oh, yeah, you know. I said, well, you just duck into the alcoves when it goes by. And he said, mm, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. Oh. So that, I guess there yeah. just wasn't enough, you know, that wasn't enough for me to just be kind of, although he did, apparently he said, oh, but I left the door open at the Bergen Street station if you just want to, you know, let yourself in and go on down. And I, I kind of wanted to, and every time my train would go into the Bergen Street station, I'd eye that and be like, is it still open? Could I go in there? Um, and then I just, I did. I thought, and at one point I thought, if I get arrested, I can't meet my deadline. I don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> right. Sorry, man. I'm, I'm in the, in the clink. Uh, I'm in the clink. <laughs> so. All right. Um, is I think time for questions. So we do want to ask that if you have a question to please come up to the microphones and ask it at the microphone. My question was sort of similar to the, what would you bring back kind of thing? What, I love the slang and the dialogue that you bring into this. I think that really puts it in an era. Um, are there any terms? Like, I found myself, after reading it, just wanting to respond to everything with, and how, <laughs> like, all the time. And so it's just, does it, is it hard to, like, kind of make that shift of, like, wanting to use the dialogue in your everyday life? 
And how. <laughs> it's the cat's pajamas. It's the elephant's eyebrows. It's the gnat's whistle. Um, thank you, first of all, for being brave and asking a question. And yeah, the slang is fantastic. I think that's one of the things that's so attractive about the 1920s is that it feels like this, this like, you know, 10-year or 9-year period that came right out of central casting. And my, I, I, I love some of the slang, like... Um, I mean, it feels like you're in a, a Damon Runyon story. Um, everything's Jake is my favorite, though, when, which means that everything's fine. If, if you say, you know, how's it going? Ah, everything's Jake. Mm-hmm. And I just loved that. I thought, I, 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 I do use that and then, until people get annoyed and <laughs> roll their eyes at me. And then I say, oh, horse feathers. <laughs> Actually, anyone who knows me knows that I never say, oh, horse feathers, that I really can't order toast without sounding like an extra in a Martin Scorsese film, but I'm, <laughs> I'm on hallowed ground and I'm being very good. Um, hi. Oh. Hi. I just wanted to say that I do, I really, really love your books. I've been reading them since I was like an itty bitty little high schooler. They partially like, inspired me because I hope um, to become a writer someday. So I was you. wondering, um, what's the best and the worst piece of writing advice you've ever gotten? Wow, what's the best and worst piece of writing advice I ever got? Um, the, the best piece of writing, actually the best piece of writing advice, I didn't get it personally, but I read about it and I loved it, was George Saunders, who is my favorite writer, was talking about, I guess uh, Tobias Wolff had been his professor at some point. And from what I understand, George Wolff, uh, George Wolff, hi. No, he would be producing Broadway. Uh, uh, George Saunders was trying to write in that sort of Iowa workshop writers. He was trying to write in a voice that was not his own. And I think because he thought that was what he was supposed to do. And um, Tobias Wolff had said to him, uh, if I'm getting, I, I may not be getting this exactly right, but, you know, he said to him, why are you doing that? And George was like, no, you know, I, I can, I can do it. I'll, I'll get it right. And he said, he said, well, don't stay out there too long. Come back to yourself. And I just, I loved that that was such a generous piece of advice about how you, you, you take risks and you, you tell the story that you need to tell. And, and the voice that comes out of you is, is wonderful. You know, we, we need all those voices. So I, I think taking risks is a great, and, um, and listening is a great piece of, advi- of writing advice. Um, and of course, the worst piece of writing advice would be like, well, you don't need to read that. Of course you need to read that. You need to read everything. Read, you know, go to your public library. We're fabulous librarians. We'll, we'll, we'll assist you. Um, but yeah, I, I think the worst piece of writing advice is, is if anybody tells you, oh, you don't need to read that or you don't, you know, don't worry about that. It's like, well, yeah, read, read everything. Mm-hmm. Um, hi. Hi. Um, Evie is this wonderful, flawed character who's both lovable and hard to love. So how did you come up with her? Um, Thanks. Uh, Evie is quite flawed. Does anyone here know, know uncomplicated people? <laughs> so, so I would love to meet them. I, I, don't, I don't know anybody who's not complicated. And I think that, you know, Evie, obviously, we all have our demons. You know, we all have the things that we're struggling with. She lost a brother in the war, and that has, uh, that, that demolished her family. And she is somebody who is you know, she's, she's very, she's very damaged by that. And I think that she lives in denial an awful lot. And I just think that there are, um, everyone I've ever known. I mean, I I think that's one of the things about reading and about writing is that hopefully what it does is create a, a great sense of empathy for every other human being on this planet. And, um, knowing that everybody has, has, battles that they're fighting and struggles that they're struggling through. And um, I, I can't imagine, I mean, you know, there has to be growth. So uh, I, have, I have high hopes for our girl, Evie. And um, yeah, so I just, I just always want to do the due diligence. There's a beating heart on that page, and I, I always hope to find it. Thank you. What are some of the challenges with working with an ensemble cast, such as in like Beauty Queens, for example? Oh boy, that is a great question. Um, again, you've now heard me talk, but I think you'll go on to live a perfectly normal life. <laughs> and I, it's, it's, um, 
it's a lot of organization. And if I, I think that that's a lot of it is like, it's, it's the, wait, I left the baby on the bus, you know, like, <laughs> um, it is just trying to figure out how to fit everybody in. I don't write in sequence and I don't outline. I try to outline the last, uh, I had 14 different outlines that I abandoned for Lair of Dreams. The 13th was called Help Me Baby Jesus. <laughs> and the 14th was called Jesus Can't Help You. <laughs> And so I can't organize my thoughts, as, as is painfully obvious by now. So just trying to make sure that everybody gets their time and, and then like, you know, really deep, because you have to go really, really deep to get to, you know, to who those characters are. And so that I think is a lot of, and, and space. Um, as you might have noticed, uh, Lair of Dreams, actually I was at the National Book Festival and I couldn't reach the microphone, and so I stood on a copy of my own book so that I could <laughs> reach the microphone. It's, it's kind of a brick, and so it's just trying to figure out how everybody gets to have their, their moment and gets to be, and figure out how their moments uh, contribute to the plot and move things forward. And I mean, it's, it's orchestration. And then also just making sure that, you know, those, those emotional moments happen for the characters. So it's, it's, I mean, really space is a lot of it, like trying to figure out how to make that happen in a condensed fashion so that it's, um, you know, believe it or not, I'm making it happen in a condensed fashion. The first draft was 900 pages, y'all. Um, my, my, my poor editor, Alvina Ling, that's a lot of it is her having to say to me, like, Libba, um, it can't be a thousand pages. <laughs> Thank you for your question. Okay. Hello. Hi. Hi. I was deciding between two questions. They were last minute questions, but okay. um, how do you feel about people writing fan fictions about your books? Um, I think it's wonderful. And I think fan fiction is a great way to actually learn to write because you're writing about something that you love and feel passionately about. Uh, and you know, like when I look back, the first, the first things that I was writing, it was like fan fiction of Scooby-Doo and, you know, like, um, you know, all the, and Hammer Horror films and, um, and Monty Python. I mean, that was really a lot of the fan fiction that I was in, in National Lampoon. These are, these are my influences. <laughs> so erudite. Um, so I think it's great, and I think it's a great way to... St I don't personally read it, because I think that that, uh, for authors, they probably shouldn't read their own fan fiction, but I think it's a wonderful thing. Okay, thank you. No, you're welcome. Thank you. Hi, it's so nice to meet you. Um, so my question was, um, well, I always love it when you can find, like, morals and characters in books that you can, like, take on and, like, learn from. So if you had to like suggest some morals from diviners, what would they be? That's a really interesting and, and complex question. Um, and I think it gets into what I was saying about the reader experience. Once I've written, um, I don't go in with an agenda. I go in to explore and examine. And a lot of it is I want to be a different person on the other side of writing that book. So I'm exploring a lot of things deep within myself um, because you have to leave Meryl on the page. And so I've done that work, and then there are certain themes that emerge, th certain things that come up, but I would never try to tell a reader what to take away from that experience. And so in a way, if, if whatever the reader takes from that experience, the reader owns that book once they have it in their hands. My work is done. And I, so I just, I would never, uh, I know that's a frustrating answer to your wonderful question, but whatever you glean from that, that's your portion of our collaboration, and I would, I would never intrude on that. Okay, thank you. Hello. Hello. I, I feel like going bovine isn't getting enough love today, so I just wanted to know, um, where did the inspiration for that book come from? Ah, you mean the feel-good mad cow disease string theory road trip <laughs> Disney World novel <laughs> that everybody's crazy about? <laughs> Write the shelf card for that one, why don't you? Um, that is actually um, many, many, many years ago, there was a man in my hometown who contracted uh, CJ, which is the, the human equivalent of, of bovine encephalopathy. I cannot say that word, um, but mad cow disease. And so what I had, my mother was telling me this story, and what I remembered was that he, um, he had these, 
he would see these flames shooting up in his field of vision because, you know, your brain is deteriorating. And um, I, I found that horrific and also fascinating because um, writers are like vultures but with fewer ethics. And <laughs> I, 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 but I thought, you know, like, if you can't trust your reality, you know, my God, what happens? And, and I think that then I, I thought, but when can we ever know what reality is? You know, I, I can say that is, a, that is a beautiful feather in your hair. And, you, you know, you could be thinking, what feather? <laughs> um, and so I think it was really, that was kind of the start of it. Um, and also, you know, this is, and I think this is really actually one of those things I'm very curious about, is why I tend to relate so strongly in literature to the, the male adolescent experience. And I, I do think part of it is that we allow uh, teenage boys in, in literature and, and, probably, and, and in society to be angry. And we don't allow girls to have that. And so to be able to have a protagonist who could be kind of, you know, just pissed off and, and depressed and all of those things. I always say that in many ways that is the most autobiographical book I've ever written. Um, and so, so it started off as, as, you know, as this exploration of what is reality and, and, and also an, an absurdism. I love, I love anything absurd. And so that's how it started. And it ended up being an exploration of lots of, I think, um, you know, of death and life and what's worth living for and love and a riff on Don Quixote and all of those things. Um, and did I answer your question or am I just really just going out? Uh, I think you're a pretty good job answering. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for your question. Hello. Hi. Um, I'm, so I'm sorry for asking a question that isn't strictly related to literature, but I have to ask, what would be your favorite, or I suppose maybe least favorite, um, ride in Misery Land? <laughs> um, first of all, you never have to apologize for asking a question, and um, it's an excellent question, and my favorite ride, well, obviously, the small world ride is, yeah. I mean, you know, it is a world of laughter and a world of tears. It's a world of hopes and a world of fears. There's so much that we share. Um, I, 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 I love the small world ride, but I also love when Tomorrowland, they, there used to be something called the people mover mm -hmm. and you would go through and it would show you, you know, like this is the world of the future <laughs> and there would be robots pouring your coffee and I just want to know where those robots pouring my coffee are, where my jetpacks are. Um, and then, you know, like there's like a light show as you go through, you go through the dark and suddenly there are stars and it's, I, I found it profound. <laughs> because apparently I'm just there's something wrong with me. But, but thank you. Thank you. Hi. Hi. I love your books. I've actually listened to most of them on audiobook. And I remember listening to Beauty Queens this summer, and I know you um you uh spoke it. So I was wondering how did you do all the accents and do you hear like characters' accents when you're writing? Um, yes, I do. And thank you. Um, that was, that was such a unique and fun experience. And I am so happy to leave that to the professionals. Um, I never want to eat I, another orange slice again. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> um, well, my joke was that, that after hour four, my Australian accent had gone. And after hour eight, my British accent had gone. And by hour 10, I, my accent, my, I couldn't even speak English anymore. You know, my American accent had gone. Um, it, was, it was really fun. I, I did come up in theater. I, I was a playwright first. So in essence, whenever I write a book, I'm really calling on that theater experience uh, about blocking and, you know, what characters are doing what we call business. Um, the whole scene, like I really, Erin Morgenstern, who wrote The Night Circus, and I were having a conversation one time, and she was a lighting major. And so we talked, and she said, I always see how it's lit. Mm -hmm. And so I always hear how those uh, characters are talking in my head. And sometimes when I'm in a cafe and I'm writing, and I'll, you know, and I'll say like, that's Jake's, Sheba. And I'm like, no, it's, it's fine. <laughs> it's, it's, it's fine. You don't have to move away, sir. It's, okay. All right. So yeah, I do. And, and that to me is super fun. I, I love dialogue and it's really, it's fun to, I, I do hear all those voices in my head. <laughs> no, you're all good. It's fine. <laughs> 
Hi, I um, I absolutely love your books, and I find myself always falling in love with your characters. They've probably ruined real people for me. <laughs> but I was wondering how you come up with such incredible characters. Where do I come up with such incredible characters? Like, do you base them on real people, or just like? How do you develop characters? Oh, that's that's interesting because you know often people want to know if if you base them on real characters, and I do think that there are probably things that we borrow from people that we know, um, but they're small things, and eventually, if you're doing your due diligence, those characters become living, breathing people. But I always think that there's parts, and there are parts of you, the writer, who are everywhere, you know, that are everywhere, um, that come from some deep unconscious place, and you're working stuff out. And a lot of times, I can look back at a, a character in a book and go, oh. I was really kind of struggling, you know, with uh, with a sense of agency then, or whatever it is. Um, but it, th- that to me is fun. It's world building. How many gamers do we have out there? Woo. Right? Like, it's, it's so fun to build a character. It's so fun to build a world. I mean, and she's like, "You are a god. <laughs> Don't strike me down." I'm, I'm like, like with a little G, little G. Um, but that, I mean, that is just what's so fun. And, and, and I think it's, again, it's always about digging deeply and trying to find the beating heart of those characters, which means going deep within yourself. That means asking yourself uncomfortable questions. And I think that that is really a lot of the writer's job is to ask those uncomfortable questions of yourself. So that's how it happens. And then also I just dress them in fabulous things. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Thanks for being here. Hello. Hi. Uh, I'm going to echo everyone else's I love you and I love your books sentiments. So thank you very much for writing all of these wonderful things for us. Um, My question kind of goes back to the representation and inspiration question that we were talking about earlier. Um, Henry's storyline and his long lost love really resonated with me. And I wanted to, first of all, thank you for that representation because I feel like uh, same-sex couples are not in the YA enough. And I really, really, really appreciated you putting that little nugget in there for those of us who appreciate it. And... um, my question about that is is just where you came up with the inspiration for that kind of um, that storyline that you have Henry go down in, in Lair of Dreams because it's so different. I feel like the the long lost love aspect and 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 entangling that into the dreams and that kind of Southern culture that isn't really part of the New York twenties that we're seeing in the rest of the book. It's it's such a not a divergent storyline, but it's so different. And I just loved that. And I wanted to know how you came up with that and how you figured out how to integrate it into your 20s roaring jazz time period. Oh, well, thank you. And, you know, obviously, uh, first of all, can I just say you're literally wearing your heart on your sleeve? I am. Um, Just for you. Marvelous. for you. Uh, So Henry, um, that is a case where I think I borrowed some from real life. And um, my father was gay. He was also a minister, and um, that was a secret that we had to keep. Uh, he came out to us when I was 14 years old. It was one of the defining moments of my adolescence was that my father worked in the church, but um, as my parents said, you know, it's okay, we can talk about this. We lived in a small Texas town, um, and this was not, you know, this is not New York City in two, 2015. Um, but you can't tell anyone because your father will, you know, He'll lose his job, and terrible things could happen. So at the age of 14, I became a secret keeper, and in a sense, I was living a double life as well. Um, And uh, my my best friend is here today, Eleanor, and we grew up together, and she was the one person I told at that time, eventually told other people, but we would go into Dallas to see my father, who was living with his partner, John, and um, and we would go into Oaklawn, which was the gay area of Dallas. And so there was like this, it was like having this whole wonderland in, in a way. It was like this whole experience that my friends at um, Denton High uh, were not having. And so it has always been very much a part of my life. But I think that um, my father was Southern and he grew up in a very rep- repressive culture. And I do think that when ACT UP said silence equals death, that that is absolutely right on. And um, my father was an AIDS death. And so I think that there was very much a feeling of kind of wanting to, uh, kind of wanting to remember my father and to give him a different storyline in many ways. I mean, there's definitely some very sad and tragic things that happen, but I think also, you know, it touches on hate crimes. It touches on um, 
on that aspect, but also gay culture in New York in the 1920s was pretty great. I mean, there were drag balls at Webster Hall. Uh, and, that, and when you talk about things that you had to keep in, you took out and things that you, had, that you wanted to keep in, I so wanted to have them go to a drag ball at, at Webster Hall, but it, it couldn't fit into the story. But so, you know, I think it, there's so much about dreams, obviously in Lair of Dreams, but also about the American dream and about who gets kept out of that dream um, again, about shaping the narrative. And I wanted, uh, I wanted Henry to, um, while representing sort of the reality of things at that time, I wanted Henry very much to be able to shape his own dream. So thank, thank you, you very much. I, um, Hello. I, I have like a cold, so I sound a little <laughs> hoarse. Um, first of all, I want to say I've been a fan of your books for years. I, I read the Gemma Doyle trilogy in high school, and, and now I'm in a university, and I'm still reading your books. Um, and I want to thank you for writing a, a biracial character um, in Lair of Dreams, Ling, because I'm, I'm biracial, and I almost never see representation um, in other books with, with these characters. Um, so I wanted to ask you about, um, I noticed a link between the Gemma Doyle trilogy and the realms and this kind of dreamscape that you have in, in the Diviners and Lair of Dreams. So there are kind of alternate realities where this, the rules don't really apply. So what is it about this that appeals to you? Um, wow, that is a great question. Um, and you're right, there is something very much about, that seems to come up again and again about, about these worlds in which the rules don't apply. You're, you're absolutely right. And clearly, it's that, you know, I'm like, we don't need no stinking rules. Um, <laughs> I think that that's a very much a push-pull in me. I grew up in, um, again, in, you know, I grew up in Texas, and you want to talk about rules. Um, and I sort of never, I was always sort of like, never fit in. I, um, I remember there was a friend of my mother's one time when I was a kid who said, I worry about your daughter. She is pathologically honest. <laughs> um, and, and so I think that there is that push-pull of like, oh, really wanting to try to fit in and make myself, I mean, you know, I grew up in the church wanting to make myself fit into that kind of world. And then just like, like you know, the can of canned snakes just popping out and being like, and being, and feeling as if, um, you know, I, I were, I were absolutely like everybody else had gotten the manual and I had not. So I think that there's a lot of that, but I think that, you know, of course the thing is, as you, as you live and go on, so many people feel that way, you know, that, that they are, that they didn't get the manual. But I also think there's so much about, um, about, uh, you know, I heard a therapist one time say that the healthiest escape for us, for our psyches, is fantasy. We create these fantasy worlds, and we move around in them. And that is one of the things that books do. They, they give you permission to try on all these different identities and to move around inside them and see how you would feel. And I, I think that that, and, and of course, again, to nurture empathy. And so I think that, you know, the idea of dreams and being able to, you know, like I would never scold someone for daydreaming, like daydream away. Um, I, I think that that is a really important thing because it, it, it nurtures the soul and it also, I think, allows, it fosters empathy and it allows us to kind of explore aspects of ourselves uh, of ourselves in, in a, I'm using air quotes, safe way. Um, but thank you very much for your thank question you. and your comment. Thank you. Thanks. I'm sorry, that was actually the last question we had time for. But catch me later. I'll <laughs> yes, be around. Exactly. Well, speaking of, uh, first of all, just thank you thank for being you. here. And, and thank you, Robin. Everything. <laughs> so, That's uh, amazing. Thank yeah. you. Um, thank you. This podcast was produced by The Drum, a literary magazine for your ears.